Welcome back to Stem Fatale, your women in oh. science history podcast. Who's this? <laughs> this is Emlyn Gremlin, your vampire for the evening. Oh, wow. Were you, uh, this is this like a true blood situation? Like you moved further south and then you ran into a bunch of southern vampires and now you're a vampire? Uh, well, there is a bunch of uh, bat guano in our back house, so I'm oh. I've been close to potential vampires. Potential vampires, yep. That's mm-hmm. that's frightening. Uh, yeah. Don't go. Uh, but the I am in the house. south, so yeah. No, I know. I'm glad I have my rabies. Did you watch True Blood? <laughs> no, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I know it has to do with vampires, but that's oh yeah. The extent of my knowledge. Yeah, and it takes place uh, in the okay. South, so they all have good accents. Nice, nice. Yeah. Um, I'm Emma Dilemma, as usual, causing problems right up top <laughs> with my True Blood references that nobody gets. <laughs> Someone's got to get them, just not me. Yeah, it's cool, it's cool. Don't let me hold you back. I won't. I never will. So Excellent. Good. Don't try to. <laughs> I... I might. Yep. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. Okay. Let's all jump right. in, because all this good banter is leaving me exhausted. <laughs> You're tired. I know. It's early in the morning. <laughs> I've got my second cup of coffee here, but it's still, I'm mm-hmm, still mm-hmm. feeling a little morning brain, you know? It, it's cool. We'll get through it. Emlyn Gremlin is not used to the daylight. <laughs> oh. Full vampire, full vampire. All right, well, let's see if your vampire brain remembers this. <laughs> no, this is, that was a bad setup to my question. <laughs> because, okay, my question... Okay, th- give me it. Yeah, my question is a little bit more innocent, and it is... I love the innocent. <laughs> God. Get out of here, vampire, gremlin, gremlin, vampire... <laughs> Okay. I don't know why this is the persona that I need this morning. (laughs) I know. It's very, it's not really a morning persona. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Go ahead. Tell me the question. All right. In your high school yearbook, did you have a quote next to your class, uh, (laughs) next to your like personal picture? (laughs) Um, okay. Uh, this is, I have to tell you things okay. now. Uh oh. I did not have a quote, but in the yearbook, they did explicitly say that they would only accept your full legal name when you filled oh. out the form. Okay. And so I put Emlyn quotes pleasing recitarits <laughs> as a joke, and they did not take that out. Oh my so god. So in my yearbook, it says Emlyn pleasing recitarits. Dude. And I think most people in my year didn't know who I was because I was relatively new. And so I had a whole weird persona. Okay. You realize, though, that now in a hundred years, when someone's doing a podcast about women in science, they'll be like, <laughs> for some reason in her yearbook, like. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's going to haunt me forever. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. So no no quote, but I did have pleasing in quotes. Yeah, that's pretty funny, actually. Yeah. Okay. Good life choices there. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> pleasing. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> well, today's scientist... <laughs> Also, she's also known as the queen of carbon, Ooh, the atom, or the element, had this as her high school yearbook quote. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. It's pretty cute. Okay. <laughs> Is it more innocent than mine? Yes. <laughs> it goes, 
any equation she can solve, every problem she can resolve. Mildred equals brains plus fun. In math and science, she's second to none. (laughs) Did she write that about herself? I don't think so. I think, like, somebody else in the yearbook did it for all the people or something. Okay. I was about to say that's a very weird thing to write about yourself. I know. But there's a picture of her with this quote next to it in one of her yearbooks. Nice. And, yeah. I love it. I thought it was pretty cute. Yeah, that is cute. Yeah. So today's Lady of the Hour, like I said, is known as the Queen of Carbon. And her name is Mildred Dresselhouse. Oh, Dresselhouse. Yeah, she has a cool name. Is she English? She is actually Polish. But okay. I don't know much about her husband. Her um Uh-huh. Okay. Her maiden name is Spiewek. Okay. Yeah, Dresselhouse yeah. does not seem like a Polish last name. I think Dresselhaus is German because it's like H A U S. So like Dresselhaus. Yeah. Love it. Okay. I'm excited. I don't know anyway. anything about this woman. Yeah. This queen. I didn't either, but she's like freaking crazy nice. awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay, her story is less like out there than some of our other stories, but she's done a lot of really cool nice. research. That's awesome. So yeah, I'm excited yeah. to talk about Tell me. Yeah. I want you to tell me. <laughs> it took you so long to get back into the vampire mode. <laughs> I know, I couldn't. It was like all over the place there. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to just get going here. <laughs> Yeah, please do. I'm going to just shut this down and start talking about this lady. <laughs> shut my coffin okay. over me and yes. proceed. Uh, yes. Put a silver bullet through your heart. <laughs> this has become like a weird Halloween episode in August. I know, in August. Well, we could always push it, I guess, but we don't have any backup. So. No. Hey, the okay. school year's starting. That's very frightening. Yeah. Yeah, it's fall time, you know. We're mm-hmm. getting into fall here. Mm-hmm. All right. So, <laughs> Mildred uh, Spiewek was born on November 11th, 1930 in Brooklyn, New York. And her nice. parents had recently immigrated from Poland to New York. Um, of course, this was the middle of the Great Depression. <laughs> so, not exactly the best time to immigrate to America, And uh, Mildred says that a lot of her childhood was pretty tough. Like, her parents struggled to find jobs and support the family. She grew up in the Bronx, mostly, which she described as a dangerous, Mm -hmm. low-income neighborhood at the time, um, where teachers struggled a lot to control her classrooms and where she had to work part-time in factories to help support her family. So not like... How old was she? Uh, pretty young. <laughs> but I don't okay. think they had child labor yet, laws yet. I don't know. I don't know when those were put Yeah, next, no, it doesn't but... seem... Yeah. Probably not the 30s. Yeah, I don't think that the working of factories was, like, a huge, huge part of her day, but I just read that uh-huh. in one thing, that she did that. I got gotcha. At least, yeah. Her brother, however, um, he was a child prodigy of sorts, who excelled in academics and music. Um, he played the violin. And so mm-hmm. he actually sort of helped her um, academically and musically. Like she learned violin at home with him. And eventually she applied to and was accepted to the best public girls high school in New York City at the time. So that was awesome. pretty exciting. Yeah. Like, she had been in classrooms, basically, where she says a lot of her teachers were not good or, like, couldn't really do anything except try to control the classroom and, like, fail. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was just a hard time for education for her. But she got into this high school, Hunter High School, where she could learn, you know, sciences and other subjects. And it was a really good school. And... Getting into that high school also meant that she was automatically 
accepted into Hunter College. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Which was, I th- yeah, I think it was a women's college okay. at the time. I'm not sure, but it was a really good school in New York City, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know people who have gone to Hunter. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So she started college with the intent to become a school teacher since she just didn't really know of a lot of different careers for women at the time. Mm-hmm. But in her second year, she took a physics course with future Nobel Prize winner Rosalind Yalow, who we haven't talked about yet, but I've seen her name on a lot of lists. Mm-hmm. And Rosalind encouraged Mildred to become a physicist, just like her. Uh-huh. Makes sense. Yeah. She was a lifelong mentor of Mildred's. You know, she wrote letters for her for quite some time, and they corresponded, you know, for a long time. Um she nice. helped Mildred obtain a Fulbright Fellowship after graduating from Hunter College. So Mildred went to Cambridge to study physics for a year. Um, then she returned and spent a year at Radcliffe, where she got her master's degree in physics. And let's see, in 1953, Mildred started graduate school to get her PhD in physics at the University of Chicago. Aha! Yeah, I couldn't tell much about you know, what else she kind of did in college or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, briefly, she that's how she got to grad school. Okay, so I did read somewhere that her advisor at University of Chicago is kind of anti-women in physics, which is like, why would you take her on then? I don't know. So she says she worked very independently throughout her whole PhD. But also she says that that was more common at the time. Um, whereas now, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, people need a lot more training and, um, advisors and mentors to really be successful in the sciences, but she worked pretty independently for her PhD. Um, in her first year, she took courses with Enrico Fermi, who's a famous physicist, uh um, and says that he, I don't know what he did, but I've heard his name. Um, and she says that he taught her how to think like a physicist. So they would walk to and from school every day together, I guess, which is kind of cute. That is cute. Um, and yeah, and she would go and have dinner at his house, but he was actually only, he died after her first or second year there. So although she didn't know him for very long, she did, uh, he was a big influence on her in those early years. Okay, and let's see. Her thesis was on the microwave properties. <laughs> oh my gosh, Emlyn, I got this stuff is like way over my head, but I'm uh-huh. gonna try my best to explain things. Okay, her thesis was on the microwave properties of a superconductor in a magnetic field. <laughs> okay, where I, I know what all those words she mean. She reported. Yeah, uh, in a broad sense, yeah, (laughs) right, where she reported on some new properties of superconductors that Mm -hmm. basically just didn't fit in with recently published theory on superconductors. Okay. And so that got her some initial attention in the field. Not negative attention, as we've seen with some of the other women we've talked about, but just Mm -hmm. people were like, oh, interesting. Like, that's an interesting finding. Yeah. And let's see. In 1958, she both defended her PhD thesis and married Jean Dresselhaus, (laughs) who was also a physicist. I think he was a postdoc, and he was working at UChicago at the time. Gotcha. So she got her thesis. She got married. What a big year. Yeah, big year. Okay. Some people do it that way. I know some people. (laughs) I kind of know some other people. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So after their time at University of Chicago, they briefly moved to Ithaca where she spent two years as an NSF postdoc at Cornell, still studying the microwave properties as superconductors, and Jean had gotten a job as an assistant professor at Cornell. Eating that cream. But um, they weren't... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, what? They, okay. They, <laughs> what does that mean? They have their own uh, dairy and creamer. They're supposed to have really good ice cream at Cornell. I know very little. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounded extremely creepy. Yes. <laughs> Just eating that cream. <laughs> Just eating that cream. <laughs> no. Okay, let's move on. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so weird. Okay, I feel like we talk about Cornell and we've talked about the ice cream and we've talked about the gorges. And I don't even know what else there is. Yeah. Cold. It's cold there. Okay. I think that's it. Yeah. It's cold. A couple of years later... Though they were uh, both offered positions to work in the recently opened Lincoln Laboratory at MIT. So for some frame of reference, Sputnik Ooh. had launched in 1957. The space race was on. And she says this opened up a lot of opportunities for women in the sciences. And I guess so had World War II, as mm-hmm. we talked about so many times. Though she, you know what, I didn't see one reference to World War II in anything. Um, but I guess to World War, II? yeah. But I guess she was a kid, kind of. I guess yeah. she would have been like, yeah, college. she would have been like nine yeah. to fifteen, right? Well, so anyway, okay, uh, okay. So in offering her the position, though, MIT asked her if she would work in a slightly different research track, the newly emerging field of magneto optics which is the study of how electromagnetic waves <laughs> so over my head okay the study of how electromagnetic <laughs> waves move through media that are altered by magnetic fields so they were like oh this field is much more like cutting edge than what you're currently working on or something like that i guess and she agreed she decided to use Semi-metals, which are a mix of, you know, materials that contain metals and non-metals. Okay. As her material system, since other people in the magneto-optics field were strongly focused on studying semiconductors. Mm -hmm. And in particular, she was interested in carbon-based materials, which weren't a very popular field of study at the time. And I don't know why they weren't popular, but anyway... She says that this actually worked out well, um, choosing to study something that a lot of people weren't studying. Yeah, for sure. She says this actually worked out well because she had four children in the next five years. Oh, that's impressive. Yeah. And she was like, if I had stuck with the more competitive semiconductor work, life would have been really, really difficult. (laughs) So yeah. working on something that wasn't quite so competitive was nice because she said, you know, I could leave the lab at five or I could, if I had to take a kid to the hospital, I could do it and not feel like I was going to get all my work stolen, whatever, which is, mm-hmm. yeah. And she also says she had a babysitter and that that was, and had the same babysitter for 20 years or something. Oh, man. And said that that was pretty much key to her success, was having someone who could take care of the kids during the day. Yeah. Which is like, well, yeah. (laughs) So during uh, her seven years at the Lincoln Laboratory at MIT, she studied the electronic structure of semi-metals, graphite, and the group five semi-metals, which I don't know what those are, but if anyone's interested, they could look it up. And eventually, all this work led to a really accurate characterization of carbon's electronic band structure. Okay. Okay. And essentially, (laughs) I don't know what exactly (laughs) that means, but this built the foundation for future condensed matter physics studies on this group of semi-metals. She struggled a lot because she was raising four little babies and because the yes. the person who headed the lab or like her supervisor at the lab was kind of not into having a woman in the lab, 
And she says that they... Seems to be the trend. She says that they started making everybody come in at 8 a.m. every day. Like, that was a requirement to be in the lab by 8 a.m. every day, which was very hard for her. Um, And she says that they pretty much... She thinks they did this to pretty much try to get her fired or something. Um. But luckily, in 1967, the Rockefeller family, one of the uh, younger women in the Rockefeller family, the really rich, you know, New York City family. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. They donated yeah. money to MIT to hire a female professor. Ooh. And MIT offered the position to Mildred. Nice. Which is awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So she... She started out as a visiting professor on the MIT campus, but then after a few months was invited to be a permanent full professor of electrical engineering on the main campus. So she could finally teach and train graduate students and have her own lab. Come in whenever she wanted. And it was 9 a.m. Yeah, 9 exactly. 9.30. Yeah. 10. Yeah, whenever. 10.30. It's crazy. No. Okay. Which, okay. Her husband, I think, is also kind of a famous physicist. Uh huh. But I weirdly didn't see a lot about him in my reading of her, uh, about her. And I think they actually work together pretty closely. Hmm. So I don't know, like, what influence he had or yeah. how successful he, he was probably pretty successful at MIT. Um, yeah, but I wish I could have found more about that. But most things really just focus on her, which is pretty cool in any way. That yeah. It's not just about her husband and she's a side yeah, note for sure. or anything. So, okay. So, in 1973, <clears throat> she decided to continue researching carbon and she began her research on Graphene intercalation compounds. Okay. Inter- I'm going to break this down. I feel like her and Rachel Carson Tell- would have a lot to talk about. Because didn't Rachel Carson work on, like, graphite for a while and, like, coal and carbon? Oh, yeah. That was, like, that weird side thing she did before she did Silent Spring. Yeah, actually, they would have a lot to talk about. What a dinner party that would be. I know that would be pretty cool, actually. I mean, um, what's her Mildred? What's her her face? (laughs) What am I talking about? (laughs) Mildred didn't. All of her work was like very physics, like so super physics. Okay, but I do wonder if they ever overlapped or really knew about each other's work at all. That would be really cool. Mm Hmm. Someone make some fanfic about this interaction. Uh, Appropriate, like. Not sexual. Be, okay. not, yeah. I yeah. don't know. Fan Keep your heads is out of the gutters. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Educational yeah, fan fiction. PG. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So she started researching graphene intercalation compounds, where graphene is a solid, um, a carbon-based solid. Mm-hmm. It's made of... Sheets of hexagonal carbon compounds. So if you can imagine, uh, these sheets kind of look like chicken wire. Does that make sense? Like if you took chick... Oh, I'm all about it. Yep, yep. If you took chicken wire and laid it flat, that's Mm -hmm. like one sheet or one layer of graphene. And then if you stack (laughs) a bunch of flat layers like that on top of each other, you get more graphene. Okay, so that kind of makes sense. Okay. Yeah, and it's all made up of, it's just pure carbon. Okay. Gotcha. But then th- there are some molecules and ions that can fit in between those layers so that they still stack. Okay. But, um, yeah, so that they still stack. So if you think of, like, the princess and the pea, except that the you can't feel the pea. The pea doesn't make the bed... <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, like you put a bunch of peas in, and so it's all kind of level still. <laughs> That's what an intercalation compound is, kind of. 
Uh-huh. So, okay, they're basically, they're molecules and ions that can insert themselves. So peas between chicken wire. Yeah, into basically okay. other Excellent. molecules or ions without really destroying the form of of that other molecule. <laughs> so that's what I could get. They're called intercalation compounds. Okay. Yeah, that's as far as I could go. I was like, what's mm-hmm. a better metaphor? Like, <laughs> getting too deep into this. Okay. Seems good to me. And she studied the electronic structure and vibrational spectra of intercalation compounds. Um, and figured out that some compounds may insert just a few molecules and graphene would still stack okay. in a monolayer. Whereas other compounds could insert whole layers of themselves between graphene layers and what she called a super uh-huh. lattice. So if you imagine like a cake with alternating layers of chocolate and vanilla, you know. I'm having yeah. had breakfast and I'm imagining it. So that's what a super lattice kind of looks like. It's just like one layer of graphene, one layer of the intercalation compound, another layer of graphene, and so on. I've got like a six-layer cheesecake slice in my fridge (laughs) that I'm thinking about real hard right now. Oh, gosh. I'm jealous. Yeah. Um, You should be. And let's see. Yeah, she figured out that super lattices have different electroconductivity than normal graphene. So basically, you can make graphene more conductive by adding layers of other compounds. Adding these these P layers. Yeah, the P. Ew, that's hard. Okay. (laughs) Now I think we need a different grape layers. That's my problem. Yeah. (laughs) As far as applications of this more theoretical research go, um, super lattices like this are now used in lithium ion batteries. Oh, so, okay. And I think a bunch of other things, but just this very like conceptual idea of intercalating a compound can change the conductivity of mm-hmm. a substance was really new and gotcha. pretty cool. That's yeah. very cool. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Even if it is only useful for lithium ion batteries, that has huge implications for right, exactly. modern yeah. modern society. <laughs> <laughs> okay. About 10 years after this, um, I don't know. I think she just researched all this stuff for a while. About 10 years later, she and her collaborators started researching new carbon materials. And to do this, they started blasting graphite with lasers, which is like, that's just physics for you. Just blast things with lasers. Yeah, sounds fun. Yeah. So this is in the 80s. um, And in doing this, they found that they could easily make large carbon clusters of 60 or 70 carbon atoms. Okay. um, That all were making formations together. And some other researchers recognized, so um, Mildred was was looking for and interested in carbon fibers, but other researchers were interested in something called a fullerene. Have you ever heard of that before? How do you spell it? F-U-L-L-E-R-E-N-E. No. I had never heard of it. Okay. So these are forms of carbon... Ugh, this is a lot. This took me a really long time. Okay. <laughs> there are forms of carbon where the carbon atoms are connected by single or double bonds so that they form a mesh containing a number of fused carbon rings. So graphene, uh, again, which looks sort of like sheets of chicken wire, that uh-huh. is a fullerene. Okay. It's like a sheet. Yeah, it's a sheet form of a fullerene. But you gotcha. can also have tubular, cylindrical, spherical fullerenes. And essentially, they're just these carbon forms that have these kind of hexagonal rings in them and look kind of mesh-like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a special fullerene. It's called the Buckminster fullerene. (laughs) Oh, my. Which this is getting somewhere where you might have heard of. Um, These are also called buckyballs. (laughs) Yes, I have heard of buckyballs. Okay. 
I don't know what they so, are, but I've heard of them. Well, uh, buckyballs are another name for the Buckminster fullerene, which okay. is a spherical fullerene that contains 60 carbon atoms and looks like a soccer ball. So it's got mm-hmm. this, you know how soccer balls have those hexagonal. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks like that, except it's, you know, have you ever played with those plastic toys where you can stretch them out? No. Okay. Never, never mind. It's I have literally no idea what I, the plastic, I, plastic <laughs> I toys that you can stretch them out. I don't know. They're kind of like a big ball shape, and they can collapse on themselves. Uh, uh-huh, yeah. They, they, they were like a little yeah. spiky ball, and then you pull them out, and they're a big yeah, big ball. They're a big sphere, yeah. Yeah. When mm-hmm, that mm-hmm, sphere mm-hmm. shape, that's what a, a buckyball kind of looks like. Okay, gotcha. Um, okay. So, and they're called uh, the Buckminster Fullerene. They got that name after an architect, Buckminster Fuller, who popularized geodesic domes. I mean, I went too f- way too deep on this, <laughs> but anyway, I was like, what is this name, Buckminster Fullerene? Like, why? <laughs> so Buckminster Fullerenes were sort of special to physicists because they knew that they could exist theoretically, but no one had ever produced one or they couldn't find them in nature at that time though at this point they've found them in nature and everything Mm -hmm. but from what i could gather mildred and her collaborators were making a bunch of buckminster fullerenes and didn't know what they were because they didn't study fullerenes they were just interested in carbon forms and Mm -hmm. a bunch of other people were like oh my gosh look at what you're making kind of um yeah though i think they were making sorry they were making fullerenes i'm not sure they were making the buckminster one (laughs) such a silly name okay so eventually you know a lot of other researchers started using this technique and they started making the buckminster fullerene and using the technique mildred and her collaborators had kind of developed and gotcha. this led to the the basically the discovery of buckyballs in nature and the ability to make them. Mm-hmm. Where these can be, I looked up what these are used for, and it says like they could be used. I don't know if they're currently actually used for this, but they c- could be used to trap free radicals. Mm. Um, they can be used as antioxidants, maybe. Or okay. used to produce inexpensive solar cells. I mean, I don't know if they're actually used for these things, but there's a lot of potential use for them, supposedly. Gotcha. Do you have any idea of, like, are they... Could you see a buckyball with, like, the naked eye, or is it so small? So, supposedly, where you can find them now is in soot. Huh. So after okay. you burn things like the soot, um, that carbon, carboniferous soot has is buckyballs or okay. fullerenes. I'm not. Maybe it's a mix of different types of fullerenes. I'm not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. So I think you could see it with the naked eye, but you couldn't see like you know the carbon yeah. rings or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. For sure. Okay. It would be like a little speck that you could see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like a piece of dust. Yeah, super Mm -hmm. small. Right, exactly. Okay. So let's see. Shortly after this, in the early 1990s, she began her work on carbon nanotubes, which nanotechnology and nanotubes weren't a thing. They weren't even called that at this time. Okay. Mm -hmm. So after a series of conversations with these different fullerene research groups, she began investigating the electronic properties of elongated tubular fullerenes. So again, let's go back to our chicken wire because this is the only way I could like understand this. If you have a tube of chicken wire, you know. Yep. Okay, but it's oh, tiny I do. and it's only made up of carbon and it's as strong as steel. That's what a carbon nanotube okay. looks like, basically. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, and they were like, okay, they knew that tubular fullerenes could exist, but the a newer idea was that you could extend these tubes to make them like really long or really short, and that you know, with 80 carbons, 100 carbons, they would have different electronic properties, most likely. And so her research group started studying the electronic properties of these carbon nanotubes and determined that they Uh could be semiconducting or they could be really, really good at conducting, like a metal almost. Um, Ooh, yeah, depending on the orientation of the carbons within a tube. And okay. so from there, she did a lot of theoretical work on the electronic properties of carbon nanotubes and spectroscopy on nanotubes and graphene. And essentially what she showed, I mean, there's a lot that she did here. It's, uh, yeah, it's crazy. But in summary... Mm-hmm. Her work showed that carbon behaved differently on a nanoscale than at larger scales. And so at the nanoscale, it could have a ton of applications that no one had previously predicted, given these larger scale projects that had been done on carbon before. And she basically discovered that not only were carbon nanotubes really, really strong, but they could be great at conducting electricity. Okay. Okay. She also worked with a PhD student, Lyndon Hicks, who might be a famous physicist. I I don't know. (laughs) But she specifically (laughs) brought him up. Um, And this is in the 90s still, I think. Um, So he showed through a series of projects that low-dimensional materials, which is to say like a sheet of material. Uh Uh-huh. Versus, you know, a big cube or something. Yeah, like a 2D versus a 3D. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Or why, maybe, I don't know. Could have really good thermoelectric performance. Okay. Which kicked off a f- that field of research, she says, into low-dimensional materials. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so essentially her research team figured out that in these last sort of 20 years, 30 years of her research career, they figured out that nanometer size materials showed new, um, she calls it novel phonon behavior, but I didn't really want to get into phonons very much. They basically showed new ways in which atoms can be collectively excited, which is pretty cool. It's like a little atom orgy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and in all, her research contributed significantly, significantly to early understanding of nanotubes and nanotechnology and paved the way for innovations in these fields. So carbon nanotubes aren't used widely yet because they have until recently been extremely expensive. But um, Mm -hmm. for some reason, the price of carbon has dropped a lot in recent years. So we may start seeing more widespread use of these really good conductors um, sometime soon, like in paper-thin batteries or unbreakable touchscreens or body armor or a bunch of other things. Very Um, cool. But yeah, from what I could tell, carbon nanotubes aren't used a lot, but her research like helped people discover um kind of just that things on it on the nano level worked differently than we could have predicted yeah. you know not studying at that level i think it's so okay. i love all the well like i work on spatial scale and so just the idea that yeah. in physics too you get that something if you look at one scale, those properties are not held up at a different scale. It's just, like, very interesting. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, you can definitely... There's a autobiography, like, a seven-page autobiography she wrote where she describes all the stuff in a bit more detail. Mm-hmm. So if it's if you're a physicist and, like, want to learn more about the minutia, you can read that. <laughs> but, yeah, so it was pretty cool. These... 
in general, like, she just did so much research that it was hard to even really describe a lot of the minutiae yeah. of, of her It's a good work. problem to have. For right. <laughs> okay. So, for her work, she received many honors and prizes. She received the National Medal of Freedom. Nice. The National Medal of Science and Engineering. She was the first woman to, to receive that. Oh, cool. And the... Kavli Prize in Nanoscience, which is kind of like the Nobel Prize of Nanotechnology, I guess. Um, It's a big prize, like a lot of money. I think it's like a million dollars. Nice, Um, nice. She was president of the American Association in Advance, Triple AS, I always forget what the A stands for. Yeah. Um, And the American Physical Society at different times, and she briefly worked as the director of the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Science. Amazing. And she co-authored eight books, and get this, 1,700 papers. What? How? <laughs> I just don't <laughs> comprehend. And she supervised over 60 doctoral students. <laughs> That's so many papers. I know. I mean... I mean, I'm sure she had, I like, think- a pretty big lab and, like... You get yeah. on every paper if the things are in your lab, and so, but. Yeah, and I want to say, like, she and her husband were on a lot mm. of papers together. Mm-hmm. Like, I really do think they work together very closely on a lot of different projects. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, you know, math is, like, way faster than a four-year, <laughs> which isn't to say, like, it's not easy or anything, but. You can do theoretical work faster than like a four-year field study yeah. or something, you know? Yeah. There are some differences there in terms of publication rate. Um, yeah. So she was – that's why I'm saying like I'm not getting into the Don't Don't do it. That like, we would be here for so months. broad. <laughs> I can't even – it was like I can't even barely read these summaries of her work and understand it. Yeah. So, yeah, that just goes to show how much – she really impacted her mm-hmm. field, I think. Um, she's very prolific. And mm. she passed away on February 20th, uh, 2017. So oh, just a couple so years recent. ago. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that is Mildred Dresselhaus. That's amazing. Yeah, I had not heard about her, but like, I know. For a while, everything was about nanotubes and like. Right. So. Even though they may not have utilized, like, nanotube technology too much because of the expense, it's definitely something that, like, a lot of people know about and is in the forefront of yeah, technology, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. So that's awesome. Totally. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, uh, Mildred. Right. Dr. <laughs> Dresselhouse. Mildred was one of my grandmother's names. Yeah. It's such an old-timey name. Like, I don't think you can get away with naming your kid Mildred anymore. Or maybe it would be, like, very uh, hip. I guess you'd probably call them Millie, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Or something. Yeah. We should start calling Millie Mildred. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) She won't care. She's a cat. Yeah, she doesn't know her name. She won't know. <laughs> All right. All right. Shall we? Work, 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 work. All right. This is the women who work section of our podcast where we give shout outs to badass Ooh. women making herstory today. So I've got oh, one yeah. shout out today. And this shout out this week goes to Dr. Larissa <laughs> DeSantis at Vanderbilt University for her recent publication in Ooh. the journal Current Biology entitled Causes and Consequences of Pleistocene Megafauna Extinctions as Revealed from Rancho Labrae Mammals. Oh, my gosh. So That sounds intense. Emma, have you been to the Labrae Tar Pits? <laughs> yeah. Or do you know I've what seen they them, are? Yeah. Um, are they cool? <clears throat> sorry. Yeah, they are pretty cool. It's just <laughs> sort of this weird, like, middle of L.A. You're just like, oh, <laughs> I guess there's bones in there. Yeah. They're awesome. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> They're tar pits. So uh, 
No, that that's it. So, yeah, so the La Brea Tar Pits are in L.A., and it's this area of extreme fossil right. diversity mm-hmm. and preservation from the Pleistocene era, which is like two and a half million years ago to about 10 mil- yeah. or 10,000 years ago. And so over the past 100 years, scientists and collectors have excavated more than 3.5 million oh, specimens wow. I had no idea. from the La Brea Tar Pits, representing over 600 Whoa. species. Which is yeah. crazy. And essentially why it's so prolific is that um, herbivorous species would get stuck in the tar pits when they were you know, foraging. Oh, and then right. this would attract carnivores that were like, ooh, free, lu- free herbivore <laughs> lunch. And then they too, because their I think. Yeah. dummies would get free stuck. Free herbivore lunch. That's what it happens yeah. to me every day. Yeah. Mm. Okay, go on. A little tarry, but it's fine. So the Labre tar pits cover like a 50,000-year time span during the Pleistocene, um, during which time many like changes occurred. So during this time, there's a great amount of climate cooling okay. that was happening. Uh, the uh, us we arrived, <laughs> the humans. Oh yeah, and we and we heated things and, up. Woo, woo. <laughs> And then there were a lot of megafaunal mass extinctions. Right. And so Dr. DeSantis and her colleagues used a combination of carbon dating on the teeth of carnivores. Whoa. Um, and carbon dating, which we talked about a little bit in previous episodes, it essentially uses different ratios of carbon isotopes to determine diet. Oh. So they used carbon dating on the teeth and also used the microscopic wear on the teeth to assess what dire wolves, saber-toothed cats, and coyotes all ate during uh, this time period. Wow. Okay. That's really cool. I also, I like didn't know that dire wolves were real. I didn't either. (laughs) Uh, So that's, so that's my cross to bear. Feels like mythical. Yeah. Huh. I knew about saber-toothed cats, right? But I don't know. But yeah, so Wait, are dire wolves just giant wolves then? Yes. Okay. Okay. Wow, that's pretty crazy. Big old wolves. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> they're not just in Game of Thrones; they actually existed. I know. Okay. Good okay. to know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Collectively, this work found that saber-toothed cats and dire wolves exhibited uh, minimum competition for prey up until the time of their extinction. So I guess before, oh. one of the hypotheses was that saber-toothed cats and dire wolves competed for the same food sources. And so when there was, like, cooling or humans or, like, various changes happened, they were competing so much that they both died out because they didn't have enough okay. to eat. So from this like new work, they found that these that saber toothed cats and dire wolves didn't compete for prey very much, and dire wolves preferred open habitat, and that the cats preferred forested habitat where they hunted. Oh, Um, and so that competition was probably not the cause of their extinction. Yeah. Additionally, they found that coyotes, which are like these meso predators. Um, with the dire wolves and saber cats as top predators. So meso predators are like not the top top, but the, you know, <laughs> second top. Yeah. 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 So these coyotes <laughs> exhibited profound dietary shifts following mm-hmm. this like big Pleistocene extinction event where most of the top predators were killed off. Wow. And so this indicates that the extinction of top predators. Uh, had downstream impacts on these mesopredators, such as coyotes. Yeah, okay. Wow, they learned a lot from... I know! Yeah, You can learn so much about, like... The ecosystem, the whole ecosystem. Exactly, and that's really... It's really cool because this allows us to kind of get a glimpse at the impacts... The impact of mesopredator release historically. Yeah. Um like in geologic time, uh, which can give us kind of an understanding of the consequences of similar types of top predator extinctions uh, that might happen in the future. Since we have so many top predators that are in danger, um, 
if those go extinct, we're going to have mesopredator release. Um, and it kind of gives us a glimpse of what we might see if that happens right, or when that right. happens. So, yeah. So, yeah. So that's my shout out. That's awesome. Very cool. That's like really cool. Labray tar pits just have so much information like embedded in them. So shout out to Dr. Larissa DeSantis. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And ha- have you ever seen them? No, I have not. I like tried to get out of LA as fast as possible. Uh, yeah. They're so weird. Like it's right in the middle of the city. Yeah. Um they're they're right next to like a big art museum. It's mm-hmm. just very odd. You know, you're just like, are these real? They kind of look fake. That's really strange. Yeah, I watched a video and she just yeah. had like a bunch of saber-toothed cat skulls like on her desk and I'm just like, "What?" <laughs> How? Yeah. That is so nuts. It's pretty crazy. It seems like you're just like, wow. So they all just kept going and <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah, it's amazing like how many <clears throat> animals right. just like died in these tar pits. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> don't seem terribly <sighs> intelligent, but maybe maybe we yeah. would have fallen the same fate. So who knows? Yeah, you never know. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not judging. Yeah. All right. I guess that's our app, huh? Yeah. So um, if you like this app, please rate, review, subscribe. We love getting reviews. It makes us very happy and also helps people find yeah. the podcast. And it's very easy to do. Um, Emma and I do this podcast for free. So we just like little reviews. That's all we want. That's yeah. all we ask for. Um, <laughs> keep you stinking money. That's a lot. So, yeah, we really appreciate if you give us a review. And then uh, I want to give a shout out, as always, to Caitlin Friesen for her awesome art. We posted a bunch more on Twitter this week. They're really awesome. We'll have to figure out um, some new merch coming up, but we can't get our act together. One one day. One day everything will settle down. (laughs) Well, we all live in different places now. (laughs) I know. Now it's it's a little more difficult. But uh, And then also... Uh, thanks to Artichoke for our theme music. And as always, you can go stimulate, stimulate yourself. yourself. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.